SportsPro OTT Summit returns to Madrid for the sixth instalment from the 29th of November to the 1st of December. Across the three days, the summit will connect and inspire more than 1,000 leading professionals, discussing the continued rapid growth in the sports broadcast and OTT industry, whilst uncovering technologies of the future. We will guide you beyond the buzzwords and ensure you walk away inspired, educated and equipped to tackle the market's evolution. Book your place today with a special podcast offer using the code PODCAST30. That's PODCAST30 at www.sportspro-ott.com. Terms and conditions apply, not applicable to pre-existing purchases. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next episode of the Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Nick, you know, for anyone that's listened to the podcast for a, you know, a certain period of time, they will know my love of American football. They should know it was the perfect weekend for me. I had football practice on Friday. I had eight hours of football with my GB Women's National Program on Saturday, and then I got to coach um, on Sunday, and then finally got to see the Bengals, you know, beat the Steelers after that embarrassing loss week one. So, I mean, it's just all things football. So I'm sure the audience are, you know, happy for me that, you know, I finally got a good proper fix. You are all in on your football. That is for sure. Um, well, fair play to you. How many hours of football have you actually had over the weekend? Like, What's, what's, the, what's the total contact hours? Let's go seven to 10 on Friday. I left my house at 6 a.m. on Saturday and got home at 9 p.m. Then I had a one-hour call with my defense as a prep call before the game, so that's another. And then probably gone yesterday for the game from 9 a.m. and got back at about 5. So what is that, 20, 20 plus to 30 hours almost maybe? <laughs> God, you say you've had more football than you've had sleep. That's, uh, that is impressive going. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm always inspired by you, Nick, because, you know, having the two kids and, you know, when I get emails to messages I sent coming at all hours of the night, I don't think you're getting much more sleep than me either. <laughs> I do try and remember there's that magical schedule send button now that I try whenever I can. I try and remember to press that because I don't want the last thing I want is to be um, sticking people with my problems and, and getting buzzed with emails at the wrong time and so forth. So I do try and be aware of that, but occasionally I, I do, I do misfire, but yeah, look for me, it's just, it's just put out fires when you can rather than be too scheduled. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, hopefully things will get into a rhythm in the future. Yeah. Well, speaking of not getting any sleep and staying up into the late hours, you went ahead and uh, wrote a 2000 word uh, piece that, you know, we're going to focus on today. I think there's going to be an article published on Wednesday as well, but you know, we're going to dive into some of that today, but you know, maybe just give a quick overline of you know what you were up to what would you say 1am last night just typing away <laughs> yeah i haven't told my wife that, <laughs> that i was up that late but she said you went to bed late last night she doesn't know when that was uh, and it was way later than i normally do uh, and it wasn't intentional but once you get into the rhythm of writing you really appreciate how good uh writers are who do it for a living and how our team in particular is incredible at putting the level output they do uh, into the market but yeah um Last year, I produced a, 
uh, a feature on the 15, my 15 things that I think we now know, I think was the, the headline or we now know as a result of all the trends we picked up off of the, the pandemic uh, or through the pandemic as we saw such, such transformation and decided to make it a bit of an annual thing and got into writing down a few things off the top of my head and then one thing led to from a few 15, 15 points to a little bit more context to 2,000 words later, though I should caveat that I have not had back yet the up the final draft from the editors. So by the time they get hacking away at it and cut it down to something that's more legible, it might be a lot shorter. So we'll see what the end result is anyway. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if your wife's a listener to the Streamtime podcast, but maybe if she is, we can just edit that part out about how late you're up. <laughs> Yeah, but look, so this this one's um it's a bit of a mishmash of stuff, but my goal here was just to take a bit take stock of where we're at today. You know, a lot again has been happening in the industry um at all levels, you know, on the business level, at the the investment level, in the technology level, uh in the US, which is obviously a, a big benchmark for a lot of the rest of the world around streaming, um and also in, in the UK and other markets as well which we we follow pretty closely. So uh, it's a nice sort of mix uh, where we're talking about topics, we're talking about big companies, we're talking about some of the lesser uh, organizations or lesser well-known organizations in the market. So uh, what I found is I could have kept going, um, but you have to pull, you have to draw a line somewhere. And uh, so we got to 15, whether or not I end up with 15 uh, when we publish but the objective is it's 15 as of, as of right this moment anyway. All right. Well, how about this? I will list off the 15. So that way, if, uh, you know, now here's the thing. We're recording this on a Monday. The podcast will be released on Wednesday. The article will be released on Wednesday. If it's not at 15, then the intent was there for it to be 15. And, you know, maybe if we don't get into all that, you can reach out to us and say, what do you think about that particular one? Because now it's missing. So, you know, I'll just quickly run through the, the, the 15, and then we're going to focus in on, on a handful of those uh, specific ones that we think are nice conversational pieces. And, you know, the first one is goodbye subscriber numbers. Hello, profitability and time watched. It's followed up by sports OTT platforms are becoming one-stop shops. The consolidation has begun. Big tech will continue to spend. Google has finally come to the table. Betting will not fund the gap. Web3 won't play a big role yet, at least not for owned and operated. Sports will solve its streaming problems, thanks to big tech. E-commerce could be the key, and social is now coming with the big answers. It turns out Amazon isn't a must-have partner for sports yet. Connected TVs are fast increasing their influence on sports, including fast. Broadcasters are still playing a traditional game. The financial gap for top Tier 1 to Tier 2 sports rights is widening. Lean in versus lean back. Does ultra-low latency really matter to audiences and documentary series overload? So that's the full list there, Nick. Um, we could easily talk about this for hours, but for for our audience, you know, we're going to pick on some select ones and really try to nail those down. You know, it sounds it sounds an appropriate way to do this, right? Yeah, why not? I think when I did I start looking at this, I thought there is fifteen things here which you could do. We could do a whole pot on. So we are looking to go through this bit quick fire, um, but I think it's a good opportunity for us to take stock. You know, it we a lot of this stuff we might and the people listening to this who follow the pod weekly. We'll hear a lot of recurring themes that we are discussing, but sometimes you need the opportunity to just for someone to bring it all together in one time, one place to help 
almost help organize your own thoughts. For me, that's kind of why I did this. It's just to get me thinking a bit more clearly when people go to me, what are some trends? Like, well, here is 15 of them right now. Um, whether they look like this in a year's time, we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Oh, don't worry. We'll have a follow-up podcast in about 12 months to figure out if we were right. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one we talked about, Nick, and I think this is uh, definitely an interesting one, is goodbye subscriber numbers, hello profitability, and time watched. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this on last week where ESPN Plus is going up in terms of subscribers, Fubo TV is going up in terms of subscribers, but it, does, it doesn't seem to matter from a business perspective. So so what is this that we've learned and what does it mean for the sports industry or broadcast industry? Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. I mean, this is, this is leaning on that example which you just shared, which is over the last number of years, it has all been growth at any cost, particularly at sort of the early stages of the streaming era. It's really all been about growth and subscriber numbers. And that's been the number that everyone's been talking about, even if you think as recently as, or three, six months ago, Disney were touting their new subscriber numbers, which they positioned themselves as having more subscribers than Netflix, even though they were double counting a number of them. When in reality, actually the marketplace didn't get buoyed by those numbers. They actually, then I think they stayed pretty flat or maybe even had a dip. And it's just leaning into this wider example that the stock market and investors are now at a shift, a shift phase between, hey, growth is great, but we have to see that the bottom line is going to be heading in the right direction. If we're not, growth is largely irrelevant to us. And added to that is the fact that subscription models alone aren't enough. You know, advertising is being rolled out um, across pretty much every major broadcast platform, uh, every broadcast streaming platform. And Netflix are obviously the most followed, uh, which they're launching their ad tier imminently. So, Basically, advertising linking in with that is such an important piece that if you just talk in a simple model of here's our total subscribers and here's an ARPU number, it doesn't really give you any great sense of where they, the businesses are actually at and what price are you willing to pay for market growth. Netflix, I think in many instances now, like, you know, we talk, might talk a bit more about Netflix later, but um, Netflix have, aren't a player in the sports space, right? Other than, say, the documentary stuff, they are, they are being talked about more and more as a possible... Uh, future bidder and investor in the space. But they're an example of someone that came in at the right time, were able to throw the kitchen sink financially at acquisition by content overload. But now they've reacted quickly to that huge write-off of valuation. Uh, and now they're focusing on profitability and adding this ad tier to try and build out the, the ecosystem. So I think it's just something you're going to see is you're going to hear more people talking about things like time watched, where that is just a true reflection of the number of number of minutes you're engaging an audience, right? If someone's a subscriber at whatever price, but they're not watching any of your stuff, they're not really a good a good consumer, right? They're not someone that you are proud of. You, you've sort of luckily hooked them in at that some stage when they subscribed in whatever format, whether it's free, whether it's paid. That's not really a great sign of actual success. Or success is if your audience is watching X amount of content and that's double the amount of everyone else and the ARPUs are great alongside that, then that, that's a win. It doesn't always have to be, you know, built around that traditional subscription model that we've been hearing everyone talk about for so many years. So that's really interesting. The, the We at the Sports Pro APAC event in the exact form where we have these C-levels in a private room to have a conversation, you know, we were speaking to Sanjog, uh, Hotstar in India, and how many just millions of subscribers they brought up. And, you know, the question got raised, is it better to have all those monthly paying subscribers if they never turn up 
or to have a smaller but very active number of people that come into your content because those people are likely to produce ad revenue or they're more likely to buy tickets to matches or they're more likely to purchase merchandise. And it was just this whole question around like, what actually would you prefer to have um, non-paying viewers, but they're very active and very loyal, or you just get that consistent month on month check, but they don't really do anything else beyond that. And it it was an interesting conversation listening to these C-level individuals all talking about like, is it the security of the monthly check or the potential high level um, that you could get from, you know, just having people that are so loyal to the brand. Look, yeah, it, those numbers that have been used historically have been papering over the cracks of what a real good broadcaster looks like. And that's a great example, right? Like long term, you can do that, whatever you need to, to make it present yourself as a successful business. But unless you've got true engagement numbers that that do move the needle and show there's a consistency in uh, engagement that... Um, that you know, your audiences are really loving what you do, at some stage you're going to get found out. And so that's why these more empirical measures will be where I think most investors and the stock market are already looking at more closely than just, hey, how many subs have you got? Now, we might touch on this a little bit or a different angle of it when we talk about one of the points around the gap splitting between tier two and tier one. But given profitability is going to be a more important factor, what is that potentially impact to have on rights negotiations. Obviously for the NFL, it didn't matter. They made plenty of money and we're predicting the NBA is going to make plenty of money. But if as profitability starts becoming more important than subscriber numbers, you know, even though some of these deals are locked in for a pretty decent amount of time, you know, do you see any impact on this where people are going to have to start considering more and more what they're willing to, to fork over to, to try to make these deals work on their platforms? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There's a few factors that come to mind thinking about it. I mean, one is, the the longer the longer life cycles of these deals is so important right like uh, we've seen the nfl's huge increase and they're expecting i think nearly 3x growth in the nba's next deal and that is because they've got they've got those longer cycles so these broadcasters can build a business around it they're not looking for just a quick hit with sub audience growth like they like they used to profitability is about the top line growth and also the bottom line so Efficiencies will be super, super important here on how these organizations are operating. Cloud-based solutions are going to help production. Distribution will become cheaper and cheaper, and they will all naturally help profitability. But when you look, when you're thinking about profitability, you'll have to be more diligent as to what rights you do buy and what rights you don't. Uh, David Zaslav, who's the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, has recently come out and said a couple of things around that, which has got a lot of people's attention. You know, one of those was we'll be obviously very prudent with our investments uh, around sports in particular. Sports used to be the holy grail. Now we have to be a bit more diligent. That's not a great, crazy comment, but that's not an exciting one for the for the industry. And also they've said that there's a lot of rights they have on their non that are non-sports related that are just not getting watched, not getting consumed. And they're they've invested into those and they just they're just filling out a library for filling it out's sake. They don't move the needle or they don't create value for their audiences. So why why invest in them? Why back them? Why support them? I think you're just going to get that more prudent approach. Again, the Sky Sports example we've used a few times here where they went to a more dedicated single sports channel approach on their, on their pay channels. That's so they don't have to invest as much into those other sports that don't obviously fit in those sort of key segments because those rights, those investments have to bring a certain return. So yeah, profitability comes at uh, comes at the top end, it comes at the bottom end. Uh, 
and everyone is going to be looking at it pretty pretty prudently discovery is a great example of 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 those who are really doing whatever they can because they let's face it they're hemorrhaging a lot of money they're looking to turn that around quickly with some pretty pretty big smart moves and, and cost savings are a core part of that as well well, speaking of discovery very nicely leads us into the next point. And, you know, we've talked about the OTT Summit coming up. Um, we'll be out in Madrid next week. And I remember one of the very first kickoff sessions of that OTT Summit, you know, I'd only been in sports for a few months then, was talking about um, OTT saturation. And we had DAZN, we had Movie Star, uh, and we had UEFA. And this whole conversation of, you know, will we get to a point of saturation? There's too many OTT platforms. But one of your learnings this year is the consolidation has begun. And like you said, Discovery is one of those people with the Warner Media merger and, you know, BT Sport, when you include that from a European perspective, all coming together. You know, we we finally seen this where everything kind of got split up and but now it's all coming back together. Should we just have always seen this was inevitable? Yeah, I think it is and has always been fairly inevitable. And you have seen a lot of smaller OTT providers come into the market with a unique offering. You know, some are dedicated around women's sports, some around dedicated single sports, um, some are just targeting lower tier sport properties. A lot. Sometimes these are coming to, into the market with a single objective of actually being acquired at some some stage. Uh, you see that quite often in the sports tech space where some of them are coming in with an explicit goal of, being acquired by another tech company and being part of their mix. And broadcasting, I think, is, is quite similar in that instance. There's always consolidation happening, particularly in markets like the US and the, the Warner Media and Discovery is a great example of that. Uh, and Warner Media went through a similar move um, only a few years before that as well. So consolidation is going to be key, but equally because you have that balancing act between it costs a lot to run these platforms. It's harder than I think most thought to to acquire audiences. So if you're going to run a niche service or a niche service to our American friends, you still have to spend a lot of time making sure your content is discoverable and findable in the, the right way. Um, you know, there's there's sports like floorball, which is a Swedish, uh, you know, big in the Scandi countries. It's actually, it's a really big sport over there. Now, if a random sports property, uh, sorry, a random broadcaster picked it up, you can't just magically think audience is going to turn up to your service. You're going to have to spend money in marketing. Some of that could be a social media investment. Some of it could be traditional paid marketing, but you're going to have to drive a lot of audiences. And that's where I think it's more expensive than most people thought to, to do these sorts of services. Now, the examples are that you, you supplied and, and the DAZN uh, and Eleven and one where actually, if you look at those businesses, they, they complement each other quite well, whether it's tech stack, whether it's markets they're in, um, they have a lot of complementary pieces. And so they can really, the one plus one equals three situation where if you bring these these two businesses together, do you make something that's significantly better than the sum of its parts? And that can be both on, on Excel spreadsheet and in the businesses they actually operate. And so I think that's where you're going to see more of this. You're going to see more of these niche operators be acquired and ingested into some of these uh, bigger properties. I mean, we've even seen Sky Deutschland is now on the market uh, on Sky Sports or Sky Sports is a huge, Sky Sports Deutschland is a huge investor into sports rights and yet they're on the market. So who knows who's going to be in for those. And so it's really exciting time to see all these big moves. Uh, and in many instances, they haven't really worked out how they're going to come together. They're just like worked out, yep, yeah, we're going to come together and we'll, we'll work it out once we, we, we make the move. So 
it's it's going to be a really exciting time as you see more of these moves play out. Well, one of them that I think will be interesting, I'm actually not going to say it, Nick, because I'm going to tease out the OTT Summit. There's going to be a big, uh, there's going to be a bold prediction session, which I'm sure at some point we'll cover on the Streamtime podcast. That session will probably be um, dual purposed into a podcast. But there is one of our guests who's going to be joining that has a very um, bold prediction on what one of those con- consolidations might be. And I just want to want to tease that one out a little bit so people come back and listen <laughs> to that one later. Good. Well, I don't even know what that is. So I'm intrigued. So I will definitely be tuning in. So to make sure I hear that one. Um, but look, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a fun time in the industry. It's going to there's going to be a lot of craziness, a lot of stuff going on, going around. A lot of executives will probably be moving around as it becomes a bit of a power play for, for positioning. Um, so expect some fireworks is my my view. Yeah, well, the next one that we've got on the list is big tech will continue to spend Google's come to the table. And this is one of the ones I think we over the last 12 months, we may have been a bit surprised about in terms of, you know, seeing how prominent Apple's become recently in the last 12 months and some of the further rumors that are coming. And, you know, we heard about Google and, you know, you mentioned that is coming to the table. They were supposedly in on um, some of the IPL deal, um, throwing some money around, things like that. So it's just, this is actually one that's probably a little bit different than what we might have said 12 months ago, but, you know, things are changing quite quickly. Yeah, completely. And I had forgotten about that IPL uh, news, news, news. I think I've, I think I've just said news three different ways, um, where they were reportedly in in the running, and and I think they that's quite an open um, tender process. So I think their bids were actually on display for people to see that it wasn't just hearsay. They were actually bidding for for those rights. But look, yeah, Apple's made uh, two moves fundamentally that I can think of: the the MLB move and then the. MLS move. The MLS move, as we've talked about before, is a significant move, not necessarily because of the financial outlay explicitly, but because they're taking a global, because they're investing the power of Apple, the power of hardware, the power of that direct relationship being in the hands of of audiences is such a significant thing that no one has really seen someone commit to before. That that's going to be you know, really exciting to see. And, and we, they keep getting reported that they are the front runner for Sunday ticket, those NFL rights we've talked about so much now though, that um, who knows, there's also the NBA rights up for it. They they were quiet for a couple of years, but this could be them going for the, for the big, big swing. Now that's now not new news. <laughs> and that's been in the, uh, in the ether for quite a while. But the fact that Google has been touted as in the running for Sunday ticket and those IPL rights, just gives you a sense that they might be coming to the table with a serious uh, move soon and wouldn't write them off being in play for the NBA rights as well. You think what they do in the US, they have YouTube TV, which is is by and large seen as a pretty great product. Not sure how financially it performs, but they've invested a lot into marketing of those rights. I think they were even sponsoring some of the NBA's uh, NBA finals, if I remember correctly. So they've invested heavily into YouTube TV it wouldn't be a shock if you start you saw, saw them make a move now. Now, the question is, why would they make that move? And I'm still not completely bought in that big tech needs sports to do what it does because they have such a mature stranglehold on the, the market. But fa- be, being connected with fandom, being part of that passion point of the audiences is pretty hard to come by. And if they can do a great job at serving great experiences um, using sports, even if it's not really generating a lot of return, maybe that's enough. Um, it would surprise me, but maybe that's enough for them to invest heavily into the sports space and and bring those big checks that we've all been waiting for them to bring for, for so many years. 
Yeah, well, interestingly, one of the other points is kind of, a, I guess, not the opposite of that, but it almost a little bit different to that, which is, you know, it turns out Amazon isn't a must-have partner for sports yet. And, you know, when you talk about big tech and, you know, we learned the other week it, it's magma, it's not fangs anymore, it's magma. Um, with well, Am- gamma. Gamma. Which what? is the same. It's it is magma, <laughs> but just re rejigged. I think gamma sounds cooler in my view. Though magma's cool. I think oh, they're both cool. I'm sure whoever came up with it just wants to make sure their company's listed at the front end of the word, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyways, Amazon, you know, it was always they they almost felt like they were Apple in the sense of it used to be any time that there was some sort of uh, rights coming up, Amazon was the person that was kind of thrown out there. And, you know, they've made different moves. They've obviously got the Thursday night football with the NFL now. They still have select Premier League rights and a whole bunch of other rights around the sports space. But it seems like they've also lost some bids where it appeared they were even outbidding other individuals for those rights and they didn't quite get them. So it's a bit interesting. You know, we're talking about the big tech side of things, but on the other side, Amazon is just not quite hit that level. And it felt like not too long ago, they were kind of that hot property that was, you know, rumored to be involved with everything. Yeah, they've certainly been bidding up uh, a storm. Um, but the the reports that really sort of set this thinking off is um, around the F1 in the, the US, as well as some of the college rights they were in for, that reportedly they've been bidding and overbid their com- competition in for those rights, but they didn't win them. And the main reason they're not winning them is, in my view anyway, it's discoverability. Like if you go on their platforms, it is a nightmare to find sports still. It's not smacking me in the face, which Amazon of all people should know I'm a sports fan, should know that and should be serving it front and center every time I come onto the page. Um, And equally, they they have no support on content on that platform. So you have to come for the live match, but if the live match isn't on, your sports property won't be discoverable or findable or engage audiences in any way, shape or form. You'll be consuming the next prime video piece of content that they have available to them. And that's fine for Amazon's perspective. You know, they just want to make sure that you're getting more of what you want, but sports wants more than that. Sports wants to make sure they're in the conversation. They're being talked about seven days a week. And that's what the big guys, the skies in, in the UK and in across Europe, the ESPNs in, in the US, NBC, Foxtel in Australia, the ones we've talked to all recently, they can make sure that their news channels and news wires and platforms are all keeping you in the conversation every single day. And that's something that we often don't regard when looking at the big valuations. Whoever paid the biggest check normally wins. It does, but normally actually what happens is there's a check number and then there's all the extra value that you bring to the table outside of that and the argument you can make about the value you're bringing in return. Uh, and some of these guys that I just mentioned are very good at bringing that case forward to a sports property to think about. And sports is now more aware uh, of the value of those things than ever. That I think they probably, in years gone by, when KTV was was burgeoning, it was too hard to walk away from that massive check number. But I think they're a bit more prudent now because they know there are other ways of driving value. So, um, so yeah, I think Amazon have a, a challenge there, a real challenge if they want to get premium rights. They have to offer more um, because they are losing, I think, some of the rights from what I'm hearing um, because of that. Now, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and the, the thing they did announce that they're going to bring bringing some daily shows to the platform, which is which is a big win, which is what they need to do. And, and let's see where that goes, how significant it is. Is it a, a replica of what ESPN do with their their daily content, shoulder programming, or is it is it a bit 
is it a half half-hearted effort i can't imagine amazon's going to half-heart it but it remains to see if the discoverability is as as strong as it needs to be yeah well one of the interesting things that's come up in conversations i get to have as part of my community role um spoken to a number of you know really big football clubs, you know, talking top five, top 10 in the world, recognized names out there. And they all mentioned probably the number one they get questioned by ownership is how do we make money digitally? Um, and one of those is OTT and, you know, trying to monetize content. But then the other one is one of the things that's listed in your, you know, 15 things that we've learned is e-commerce could be the key and socials coming with the big answers. And interestingly, I was you know, speaking to Michael Sutherland, chief transformation officer at Real Madrid. So there's at least one of the football clubs I was talking to. Even he said, whenever that he gets asked that question, he says e-commerce is the number one thing that's just a glaring miss and, you know, everybody's strategy when it comes to digital. So for you, you know, how is e-commerce going to tie specifically into the OTT and streaming space? And, you know, where's perhaps is social fitting in this? Because I remember when I first started, Nick, that was back when we were talking about, ooh, is Facebook or Meta going to go for live rights? Is Twitter going to go for live rights? But it's almost seemed now that they've kind of accepted their role as facilitators towards additional engagement as opposed to necessarily being that source itself. So it's kind of interesting how this has all developed and kind of come together a bit. Yeah, the e-commerce side is a really interesting thing. Now, most of the social media platforms have quite a, a solid e-commerce platform, but it, it hasn't been fit for purpose for what sports needs to do. I'm not exactly sure why. I think there's a, it's complex when you have licensing deals in place where you're not just trying to sell random stock. You have complexities with which brands you're partnering with and perhaps what markets those relationships exist and the different rules from market to market, but obviously businesses like Amazon specialize in that stuff. So do fanatics and others. So has been surprising. We haven't got there sooner, um, but we had uh, TikTok's uh, head of sports, uh, Harisama uh, on the pod who talked about they are launching a dedicated um, sports e-commerce proposition, which is built around ticketing and merchandise. And so that the goal is to be able to drive audiences on their platform directly to sale. Um, which would be significant if you think about it, because all, all really social is doing as from a commercial output is being an audience builder uh, and then being a platform where there can be some sponsored content that they can leverage uh, and monetize that way. Now it's going to be more direct, uh, which would be is quite exciting, I think, for a lot of people and will provide a better way of measuring the value of non-live rights, which is really, I think, quite an important piece in all of this. If you can drive audiences... Um, you know, watching all the highlights to, hey, subscribe now to watch the next game or, hey, you just saw these goals, buy this buy this shirt now, buy these shoes now, et cetera. Doesn't even, ha I mean, the live is the, the holy grail, which I've heard loads of people talk about the last few years, but I haven't seen any working examples. So it's, it's clearly complex. Um, live will be the holy grail, but even if you can do it with non-live and through social, it just scales your audience and, and commercial opportunities way above what owner operated can if they can make that work properly so uh, quite surprising that we're still not quite there yet but the, the best of the best are working on it so there is a reason for it one thing i had remember when i went to this youtube sports day is that youtube are they actually launched a pay-per-view product uh and they've launched e-commerce and i think they had to wind it back and do some more work on it and now they sort of relaunched that offering 
I could be wrong on the e-commerce bit, but they definitely did with the pay-per-view. Oh, and it was subscription as well. So running subscriptions and pay-per-view on their platforms. So who knows? Like those platforms are trying to find a way of generating direct income, direct relationships with audiences. And my odds are, my, my, my bets are that they will work out a pretty big solution to all this when the time comes. Now, the only the final part on that is it's sports is one big piece of the pie. So that is also why it's taken a long time. But I think we're getting close to a point where we're going to be pretty impressed with what, what comes out of some of those, say, social video platforms. Well, let's put it this way. I, I know a lot of really smart people are talking about it. And as you say, Nick, I have no doubt that they will find a way uh, to make it work. Now, one of the things we, we kind of touched on a little bit, and I raised it as a question uh, when we were discussing talking about profitability, but it's just... It is clear that there is now a a widening gap between tier one and basically tier two and everything below um, in the sports broadcast space. And you know what what does that mean for the rest of the industry? Because I think this is one of those things we, I, I like to talk. I like to talk about it as like a pie. There's only so many ways you can slice up the pie. And does that mean at some point you get to a point where you have to say goodbye to things like the EFL and second tier leagues. Does it, you know, where's the home? Is there still possibilities for it? You know, it, cause like you say, as these get more expensive, you can only pick and choose where to put that, that money. And if you put such a percentage into there, is that all doom and gloom for tier two, tier threes? I mean, they have to be smarter about it. You know, what, what does that really mean? And, you know, give, give us that, that bright hope, Nick. <laughs> Look, what, in my view, when you've got a, I've kind of presented this a few times to different groups and we've talked about, I think on the pod that I kind of say three core buckets of, of sports properties in their strategies. The tier ones are the ones that are the needle movers for broadcasters and can charge a premium and their rights values are still taking the majority uh, share of those rights and, and valuations are largely going up in a lot of markets. Um, tier two needs the reach to sell all their other offerings and they're not at the tier one stage yet, but that's their aspiration. But quite often they have to lean on either sponsor partners or that free-to-air reach to monetize in other ways. And the tier threes don't have a chance of being on a broadcast platform, so they have to rely on owned and operated and, and social. Right. So there's those three, those three key, those three key buckets. My my thinking, thinking about it a bit further is if you're in that tier two where you have the reach coming through different channels and mediums, let's say it's free-to-air. Is T1 seriously an area you can get to in the, like, the next five years? Because if it's not, then I think you, you should actually intentionally not think about trying to get there and instead just set yourself up to be a modern business. And that means that you're not setting yourself up to potentially sell some media rights to a broadcaster in years to come. You're finding out all the ways that you can leverage and drive value out of reach. Now, that might sound obvious, but I think sometimes when people have in the back of their mind that they could get a pay TV check in a few years' time if they get themselves to a certain scale, that can just distort or just guide them off their off this right strategy a little bit. And they end up not doing either quite as well as they could. And the reality is if this gap is widening, then there's, we've talked about social just now and e-commerce, Like there's going to be more and more ways for sports properties to generate revenue, um, significant revenue, if they really commit to audience growth at scale. Um, you know, if any new sports come to the market, the reality of being a tier one sports property, it just doesn't exist. It's just look at, look at every tier one sports property you can think of, which one of them has not been around for 20, 30 years or more. I can't think of a, sing, a single one. So that's not going to be achievable to anyone. So instead, just double down on that. 
Look at how you can be social digital first and build a business that way. Obviously, the example we've used a lot is the overtime example, where they built a brand around no live sports, around building a community, and did it better than anyone has ever done it before. The example I used, I recently did a, a lecture for a business school in Lyon, uh, which was in, in London recently. And, and you just use that example. And the more I think about it, the fact they were able to sell incredible amounts of merchandise with the overtime logos on it as the core message. I think about the Premier League and the NBA and the NFL. How often do they sell that that sort of merch? It's always about the team. It's always about something else. Uh, and it's never about the league itself, but they've managed to pull it off. So look, my thing is just double down and commit to it. And look, you may end up with someone coming, knocking on your door in the future, but it does not have to be the priority to build a really successful uh, organization if your expectations are managed appropriately. Well, I think the the thing you've talked about there and you talk about the overtime example is it's about the community. It's that sense of belonging. I think that's ultimately what sports is about and fandom is about is that, uh, you know, intrinsically you can walk into, you know, I'm a West Ham United fan. I can walk into a pub uh, in East London on a game day. And because me and some stranger I've ever met have that same badge on our shirt. You've now become, there's that community, there's that sense of that. And I think that's what overtime did. And I think that to your point is that way of talking about doubling down on that and building communities. And ultimately that's where you can try to monetize that. You know, you might not be able to monetize your content in the way a tier one can where you have this mass reach, but if you can build this community, this uh, idea that people can come together and feel a part of something, that's something people are willing to either invest their money in or invest their time in. And that time investment can be turned into ad revenue. And that's probably, I think, the way you've got to go about it is thinking more along those lines as opposed to this mass reach product that you're going to get with your content. Yeah. And look, digital collectible stuff has been talked about a lot lately, fantasy gaming, those sorts of things. They're going to play, continue to play a massive, massive role and an increasing role. And there's ways to generating huge value out of that if you are a uh, a sports property, but you're just looking, just trying to have an expectation or hope that you're going to get this big check at the end of the day. Just forget about it, move forward. And if it comes, so be it, but don't put all your eggs in that basket because it's way harder than what any Excel spreadsheet can tell you. They think, oh, if you just keep growing this rate, you'll make lots of money in the future. It doesn't happen. It just does not happen. And expectations have to be managed you know, profitability over just growth at any cost. And if they do that, then I think they, they'll have a chance of growing a really solid sports property. Just you can't be the NFL in five years' time, unfortunately. I wish uh, I could retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last one I wanted to, to, to bring up is broadcasters are still playing a traditional game. And, you know, I do think this one is interesting because so much we talk about innovation, new technology, and all these different things. But I think kind of the point you're making is, you know, while rights holders like the NBA or FIFA are, you know, doing these exciting things and building these new platforms, it does seem like for the traditional broadcasters, not much has actually changed when you really look at it. No, they've all they've done is really shift and keep us close to the business model the existing business model as possible and shift that to, to streaming. And every broadcaster I can think of that I've spoken to offers a, offers a subscription offering, offers an advertising option or some hybrid, maybe a bit of pay-per-view, maybe a bit of ad-supported revenue coming in the mix. And that is it. And all the industry is talking about all these other um, lean-in experiences you can provide and betting and other and, and NFTs and so forth. And everyone I've talked to, uh, many on, on the pod, have all said that's not really on our radar at the moment. We just want to be more efficient at doing the best we can with the legacy model that we 
been using. So it's a very much the same, same, but different. And I didn't really realize that it was so plug and play and formulaic until having all these conversations and so sort of digging into it a, a little bit. So look, I think nothing, nothing huge out of this other than every, every broadcaster is following basic economics of supply and demand of the, on their core product. The, the only area I can see of where there could be a nice little revenue bump is around betting third-party partnerships, but that's just effectively it's sponsored content or sponsors of, you know, you think about what the NFL does with like Verizon halftime shows and, and those sorts of things. That's that type of initiative. Um, other than that, it's largely, again, business as usual, just a little bit less friction in, in getting someone to subscribe than perhaps what you had to do on your your old cable or pay TV devices. Well, how about I put you on the spot? Because I, I unlike the audience, get an early preview of your, you know, your article you wrote before the editorial team does whatever it is they want to do to it. But, you know, you asked the question and it's right here in front of me. Are broadcasters just smarter than sports and knowing what works and what doesn't work? So the question to you, Nick, is do you think, in fact, broadcasters are? Because obviously they work outside the sports space. They might have a broader set of experience, set of data to have a larger idea of trends, things like that. You know, are, are you know, I'll just ask you the question. You pose the question, so why don't you answer it? <laughs> yeah, so are broadcasters smarter than sports? Well, it's a bit of a cheeky way to phrase it, but look, broadcasters have an incredible amount of resource, far more than any sports property at analyzing how to tackle this environment. And the fact that next to none of them are making any of these uh, these additional supplementary moves or additions to their platforms and putting them hard, uh, at sort of front and center tells me that they've they've worked out something and the, those those only have incre- incremental value at best. Uh, and for now, they're willing to wait until the time's right to start pulling the trigger on those types of initiatives. You know, for example, the whole NFT space. Every platform I've seen in the sports industry has been talking about digital collectibles or NFTs in some way, shape, or form. None of these guys are. Now, could they could they bring it into play in five years' time or three years' time? I'm sure they could if they decided it was time to pull the trigger, but they won't sacrifice on just having a, a sort of a frictionless uh, experience as possible and making sure they provide a, a really high-quality product. But quality doesn't mean quantity in these instances, and throwing the kitchen sink at sports fans and audiences won't necessarily be the solution for sports fans um, in in signing up to or subscribe to uh, live sports propositions. So, yeah, broadcasters seem to have stayed with this, and we haven't seen many in the sports OTT space that have hit home runs trialing these sorts of initiatives. So I guess they kind of saw the writing on the wall there. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to someone that I would say is quite bearish about Web3, and basically his conversation was... 95% of fans, the only thing they want to know is what channel can I watch the game on and where can I buy tickets? Anything else beyond that, some of them might buy jerseys, some of them might buy some memorabilia, but 95% of it, those are the only two things they care about, and I just don't really see why we need to do anything else. Not sure I fully agree with them, but I am probably the one that's wrong if you look at the numbers. <laughs> well, you think about, let's say we're both NFL fans, you're watching Red Zone or an NFL match, your second screen experience is using whatever platform you're using to so maybe check your fantasy team or maybe checking Twitter, although who, how, who knows how long people will be using Twitter, but checking into various platforms to see what's going on a little bit deeper. So I think there is an interest in second screen experiences, less so in the integrated one where you're like constantly manipulating what is on the screen, particularly in connected TVs. And there is just a limit to the technology right now and what you can and can't do. Uh, 
but you know, I think second screen is a big interest, interesting part of the whole mix. It's just that doesn't need to be your experience. Doesn't matter if people are using other or third party platforms, if you're a sports property and it's not your own. Like obviously you want it to be the, be your own. The example I think of is again, you know, fantasy sports. So you can be using any one of half a dozen major fantasy sports providers to be tracking your teams. Um, but the NFL is not necessarily getting that direct interactivity if they don't have you on their fantasy platform. Does that matter? Does that matter to them? You know, the fan, the fandom is going up. The engagements are high. People are watching. Do you need them to be pushed to your platform? That's the big question. I think everyone's greedy and wants more. And probably the answer is ideally yes. But if, if fans find their own way to create a higher level of engagement um, through these sorts of tools, then that's not, not the end of the world, is it? No, I don't think so. I think fan fans are good. Uh, you know, I don't think the NFL minds that I'm using the sleeper fantasy app so long as I keep paying for NFL Game Pass because they know one one hand washes the other. I believe is the expression, Nick. Yeah, look, it's it's a good example though, right? Like until recently, I wasn't a subscriber to Game Pass, and I am I am now, but I was consuming hours and hours of content every week. I was using fantasy. I was playing fantasy sports. I may have been doing some betting, et cetera, on Twitter, consuming lots of that content. And that's just a great example, right, of the whole economics of sports from a digital perspective are, are pretty broken. If someone like me, who is, say if I'm not subscribed to Game Pass, then the NFL is getting zero pounds out of me other than maybe a few indirectly through ad revenue of third-party providers who might have a licensed agreement with them it's not really bringing the returns of the level of, of fandom that I have. Um, and that's where we have to get a bit more thoughtful on how the sports properties that are creating fandom through all these peripheral in initiatives don't have to have a single screen app to do it. They can, um, but they're generating value out of it outside of just the live rights, uh, live rights sell, which most of the top tier sports uh, are completely reliant on to drive their, their revenues and their growth. Absolutely. Well, Nick, that's just slightly under 50% of the, the, the things that we've learned over the last 12 months. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I would strongly recommend you do. There will be an article that's also going to be published by Nick, um, although he did say, you know, the editorial team might cut that down from 15. But if you want to see the rest of the list, and there's additional context, not only to the points that we talked about, but all the other points that we kind of went through on that list, if you just want to know sort of what our, our thoughts are on things that we've learned, please go check out and read that article. And then, of course, as always, whether it's email, link, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it is, if there's something you think you've learned or you think actually we, we're wrong about something, like we're always happy to hear this, but definitely let us know if you guys think you've learned anything else over the last 12 months and definitely go take a read of that article. Is, is this going to be coming out as the podcast is released as well? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I remember I got a, quite a few messages last time around one or two key topics, um, which do feature again. So let's see uh, what the feedback's like this time around. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again, everybody, for joining us. Um, next time you'll be hearing from us, who knows, we might be out of Madrid doing some pretty fun stuff. If you are a listener to the podcast, you will be at the OTT Summit in Madrid. Please do absolutely come find us. There's a couple of different round tables. I believe there's a, a Streamtime coffee area or something like that along the way, somewhere on the floor plan. Uh, but do definitely come find us. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know if there's anything uh, we need to be doing and certainly just give us any feedback. We'd love to see you guys out there. Absolutely, Chris. Looking forward to it and looking forward to seeing you all out there. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. 
ultimately want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast. Thank you.